Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. The Buck Sexton Show. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Look, I think it's possible to be in the 3 to 4% growth zone. The last three quarters, which is really the, you know, Trump's uh, first uh, year in office, the last three quarters we picked up from under 2 to um, 3.1% at an annual rate. Now, three quarters is not a lifetime, I get that, but it's a good start. And as I'm sure you know, you can look at the ISM numbers that came out this week, they're booming. Confidence is booming, both business and consumers. Uh, all that looks good. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everyone. Uh, the economy. The economy's doing quite well. And today is going to be a little bit of an exercise in what matters to you Versus what they want to tell you. There we had Larry Kudlow saying that he thinks that we could be in for some really excellent growth. And let me just also say that many of the numbers that under a different, dare I say, Democrat administration, that would be used as exhibit A of look at how good things are right now. Look at how everything is going in this country. Those numbers are probably, and this is not a criticism for any of you listening or anyone you know, but those numbers aren't top of mind and that's has nothing to do with you or me it has to do with what the focus of the media narrative is day in day out i have to tell you i confess that for a moment i have to think what is the unemployment rate right now 4.1 percent by the way i have to actually but i go wait wait what is it again shouldn't that be something that someone like me reads about politics all day all the time that shouldn't be hard, right? I should know right away. Under the Obama administration, we were always fed these numbers and told things like he saved us from the Great Depression, saved us from the Great Depression. That was the line. It was hammered home. You think to yourself, well, how exactly did he do that? The Bush administration put in trouble, uh, put in place the uh, Troubled Asset Relief Program, TARP. They were the ones that shored up the banks. Obama just came in and was like, yeah, let's spend a trillion dollars on stuff Democrats like. A lot of which just kind of went into who knows where. Certainly didn't seem like a good way to spend a trillion dollars. And the economic data on federal stimulus as a form of helping the economy is actually, to call it mix is probably too generous. It's actually uh, historically something that does not work. It's a bad idea. But here we could be having discussions in the country about what well first of all how things are going well and where we are versus where we were told we would be is night and day you remember i remember a year ago now um marches in the streets maybe a year ago in a couple of months you know not my president marches the women's march columnists supposedly serious columnists for major publications either hinting at or outright stating that fascism was descending upon America. And when they weren't talking about fascism descending on America, they would talk about how Trump 
was surrounding himself with cronies who know nothing, that Trump is not the business mind that he pretends to be, that he can't handle this. He can't do this job. He's unfit to be president. Now we are, what, a year and a couple of months, a year and change into the Trump presidency. And you've got serious economists and serious people who are saying that we're in actually for a lot of growth, a lot of good things. That matter to you, that matter to me. I would like to see shared prosperity for the American people. I'd like to see that the uh, forgotten men and women of this country, the Democrat Party had left behind, had taken for granted. I'd like to see those folks feel like they've got a better shot going forward, that they can make progress in their careers, on their mortgages, with their bank accounts, that if they keep doing what they're supposed to be doing, as they have been, there's they have a, a better chance, a better shot at achieving the kind of life that they want. But we don't get told much about this, do we? We, we don't get to sit here and, and go over the numbers and say, wait a second. Not only did the stock market not crash, which is what they were saying would happen on election night. Oh, the Dow futures are down 500 points. Oh, no, it's all. That's what they were telling us. And I mean, they, the entire media apparatus, save a few. I mean, I'm sitting here talking to you about the direction of the economy, and yeah, immigration plays a big role. Trade, we're gonna, we've got a trade expert joining later in the show. We will do a deep dive into what's going on with China, what's going on with NAFTA, because you want to know, right? This affects you. It affects the price of the stuff you are buying day in and day out. It affects the future of industry and, therefore, employment in this country. It matters. Whether you're listening in Maine, Indiana, or California, it matters to you. Meanwhile... As I sit here in the Freedom Hut, you know, we're pretty technically advanced. We're pretty savvy up in this place. We got monitors, screens on, and so I can just kind of get a sense as I'm talking to you of what the other folks are are discussing. And sure enough, CNN is running yet another, another Stormy Daniels montage. You know, that's what we need. Let's, let's just let's put a little more Stormy Daniels. You know, they, they've got a fever, and the only prescription is more Stormy Daniels. I, it's, it's not even I guess we use their stage name, but that's what they're doing. That's that's what they're run with. I, I think that they're now in the game of just all out distraction until they can come up with a semi coherent narrative of why the Trump presidency has actually been a disaster for America based on what they told us it would be. It's a miracle. I mean, it, it, you'd have to you'd have to assume that there was divine providence in the salvation of America. Right. Because we were led to believe that if Trump was president, if and never mind, just Trump, Trump is president and Republicans of the House and the Senate. And things are good. I'm not saying it's perfect. We had a lot of things to work on. I was very annoyed at Trump over the omnibus. And, you know, we still have much to. Much to uh, fight for. But things are actually pretty good. And, and you get into the what matters to you versus what they want to tell you paradigm. They being those who have all along been lying to you, misleading you, presenting you with, yes, fake news or false news, as I like to call it, depending on the, uh, the severity of the infraction. And here it is. It's, it's prime time, folks. I'm on the radio in prime time. It's prime time on TV. And you get CNN running Stormy. More, more on Stormy Daniels. I, you know, it'd be interesting. And producer Mike, maybe we could find a way to we could look through some of the transcripts. It'd be really interesting to see. When the last time was that CNN ran an actual story or MSNBC on the unemployment rate? Just, I mean, even mentioning it in any 
you know, where it actually went up on the screen, uh, you know, and it was the the focus of a segment, you know, the employment rate in the country. Uh, or we could even do black unemployment in this country, which is at historic lows, or Hispanic unemployment in this country, which is at historic lows. And how this president keeps celebrating this and saying, isn't this great, guys? Lucky. Not only is the country really doing well, but also historically disenfranchised communities are doing well. Better than they've done in decades. And it's under the president that they told us was the basically as bad as Hitler fascist who can't count to five and is going to tank the economy and fight a nuclear war that somehow we'd lose with North Korea. I think that there has to be a sense of quiet panic among, although they're never really quiet, right? But internal panic among some of the Democrat media apparatus. And that's how always how I think of it, too. It is an apparatus. It's uh, they're symbiotic organisms. You know, the Democrats and the media they're They go back and forth between the two, the Democrat Party and the media. But they've been running with all this stuff and it's all come to naught. And there are people that are so in the grips of Trump derangement syndrome that they just want to be fed this constant diet of Trump is destroying America. Trump's the worst racist ever. Trump I, Madeleine Albright. And I actually had to I had to give her a. A, a bit of a buck slap for this one. Um, Madeleine Albright tweeted out that Trump was the most anti-democratic president in history. That was her tweet. Now, this is a former secretary of state. And and I, I don't even do. Do we have Brennan here? The former director of my home agency, the CIA. Do we have what Brennan's been saying? Let's let's grab some of that, guys. Oh, yeah, here we go. Uh, play play 15 for me, John, please. I think the, the good cop, bad cop uh, proposed sort of approach is not appropriate in this instance. I think Vladimir Putin and the Russian government have to understand that there is unanimity within the U.S. government, within the executive branch as well as the legislative branch, that we're not going to tolerate this type of Russian interference. And when Mr. Putin uh, hears different messages from Mr. Trump that's inconsistent with what I think the instruments of government are doing, they're trying to turn the screws on Russia, I think it gives uh, Mr. Putin a, a little bit of reassurance that he can continue along this path and Donald Trump is going to do what he can to protect mr putin donald trump is going to do what he can to protect putin wow yeah that seems fair that seems fair-minded at this point meanwhile trump has done more to antagonize putin than his in one year than his predecessor did in eight trump has done more to show displeasure and taken more action in response to russian provocations of all kinds some of which, by the way, aren't really our problem, but that's a whole other discussion, than his predecessor did in eight years. And you still have people with prominent platforms or at least big resumes going out there on the anti-Trump, dare I say, crusade, or should I say jihad, whatever's acceptable these days. Can't have crusaders as a mascot anymore, that's for sure. I wonder if you could get away with actually having the jihadist as a mascot. I bet you could do it. You can't have crusaders. They're, they're abandoning crusaders as a mascot. If a team decided to call themselves the jihadists, it would be okay. You know why? Because they'd have some uh, apologist for radical Islam who would come out and say, well, but it's really about internal striving. That's always like internal striving is what jihad's about. But we'll talk about the NYPD's uh, surveillance program, which I was a part of. So uh, something came down on that today in the news later on the show. Oh, wait, but, but Madeline Albright. Tell I'm fired up. I'm bouncing around a little bit here. Sorry. Madeleine Albright says that Trump is the most anti-democratic president in history. And I, I just had to, to put it out there publicly 
Well, that's a pretty tough thing to say because we don't even have to go back into the Civil War era. We don't have to go back into the founding. Uh, We can just look at 20th century presidents and you have FDR putting Japanese Americans in internment camps. You have Woodrow Wilson, who wished the South had won the Civil War, who was who resegregated the federal government and who was unrepentantly an apologist for the Klan, the Ku Klux Klan. But they're Democrats. And so somehow they don't register. But Trump is more anti-democratic than just those two candidates I came up with off the top of my head. Meanwhile, pushing back finally against China and its economic aggression and theft. It is theft. You got unemployment at 4.1%. You have the stock market still still booming, despite everyone saying, oh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come crashing. And it might at some point. It will. There will be a correction. I, I know. I understand. But still doing quite well. And a lot of reason to be hopeful and optimistic. Meanwhile, Stormy Daniels and Russia. That's what that's what 90 percent of people whose livelihoods and whose careers, whose callings are supposed to be bringing you information and facts. Ninety percent of them don't want to tell you about any of the things that I'm talking about. They just want to talk about Putin and Stormy Daniels. Is it possible for them to find two subjects about which you as a normal, rational human being, a normal, rational American could or would or should care less. I don't know. I don't know if it's possible. I mean, sure, I guess. But when you think about it, they're picking some stuff that's really irrelevant to your day to day life and to policy and to what matters to the country. So um, I I, like I said, we'll have a, a trade expert joining us later on. I've got oh, I've got more on the whole Mueller probe, which just never seems to stop. Kim Strassel will hang out with us later from the Wall Street Journal. She's got some updates on the whole Scott Pruitt fiasco. Should it even be a fiasco? That's what we'll address. And um, I'll talk to you about the Kevin Williamson firing from the Atlantic. I am very agitated about it. And I'll tell you why. Another conservative fed to the outrage machinery. Um, so we've got a lot to talk about here, folks. 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Be right back. We are about to play a clip for you, but... We are holding up. Oh, there we go. Someone of interest to the grand jury, but it can also mean someone who's on the road to being charged with a crime. It's a big deal to be under criminal investigation by the FBI, particularly if you're president of the United States. So certainly being a subject, they shouldn't be cracking any open any champagne in the White House if he's a subject of an investigation. A target is somebody they're going to indict and the president by the policy cannot be indicted. So it, it's a little vague what they're meaning. And it may be to make Mr. Trump relax. If someone walked in my office and said I was a subject of a multi-year criminal investigation led by former FBI director Robert Mueller, I'd wet my pants. But you can't help but think that maybe it's strategic. Like, tell him he's a subject. He likes being the subject. Well, we're going we're gonna to discuss with some people who have experience in this just how often that occurs, yeah. that there's a little bit of shading of it when they're just on the verge of switching you into target. Uh, they That's still right. say you're a subject. They are obsessed, folks. Media obsessed. Looney Tunes level obsessed. Like, you know, leaving 30 voicemails at 2 o'clock in the morning after the first date obsessed. They need to get a clue. 
what you heard there was a lot of, well, he's a subject, he's not a target, but a subject could really be a target, so a subject might as well be a target, so a subject is a target. Can you feel the crazy? Because I can. It is bonkers. I don't know. I can't separate how much of this is genuine delusion versus uh, playing delusion because it plays to the the base. It plays to their audience. Right. So it's tough to know, you know, when Rachel Maddow, we played, she was cackling there about Trump and this whole subject versus target situation. It's tough to know. Do they just think their audience is dumb and so they play dumber to their audience or do they really believe this? I don't know which is which is worse, by the way. I, I don't know which one is better or worse for the state of things in this country. There's a part of me that would like to believe that this is this Ahab-like quest with Trump as white whale is driven by cynicism instead of true believers. Meanwhile, we got Joe DiGenova, uh, who's a former U.S. attorney for D.C. He had some thoughts on this investigation. The fact that he has been recently notified that he is a subject means absolutely nothing. He is not even a subject. He is a witness. A subject is a person whose conduct is within the scope of the grand jury's investigation. What the hell does that mean? It means they don't have anything on him. And now we are told that Mueller wants to interview the president of the United States. What we are seeing now is conduct by two public officials, Robert Mueller and Rod Rosenstein, that is unethical, unprofessional, an embarrassment to the United States government. Rod Rosenstein single-handedly has taken away from the sitting president of the United States 16 months of his presidency by his incompetent and fearful conduct. If I could do a standing ovation in here that you would see, I think I would do it right there. There are real stakes here, everyone, with all with the hyena arena over at CNN and MSNBC and all the rest, you know, you know, all just so excited, hoping that Trump is going to is going to be indicted. The presidency is going to come crashing down. They forget that this is actually the most powerful position, most powerful role in the world. And it affects all of us. And it would be nice if it went well. And if we didn't have people who would do anything, go to any lengths of dishonesty and disgrace in order to undermine the sitting president. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. A lot of market to be vote. A lot of times it doesn't matter because in many places... Like California, the same person votes many times. You probably heard about that. They always like to say, oh, that's a conspiracy theory. Not a conspiracy theory, folks. Millions and millions of people. And it's very hard because the state guards their records. They don't want to see it. So we have a lot of things going on, but a lot of things are being straightened out. We had somebody in, uh, on the West Side Highway, which I know very well, in Manhattan. He ran over, I think he killed about eight people came in through chain migration. Or he might have also come in through lottery. But he brought a lot of people with him. They say 22 people. 22 people. So this guy, because he's here, now can get the mother and the father and the grandmother and the cousins and and the brothers and the sisters and the aunts and the uncles. This is what the Democrats are doing to you. And they like it because they think they're going to vote Democrat. Okay. Believe me, they're they're doing that for that reason. 
Trump's right on that one, that immigrants in the country are, are a, a favored constituency, illegal immigrants in the country, uh, well, really, honestly, immigrants of all kinds under the current immigration law uh, are a favored constituency of Democrats, not because of any preference for immigrants or illegal immigrants as people, just because they vote Democrat. So there's a very straightforward political rationale behind why Democrats take the positions that they do on all of this. And it is understandable that given our immigration system is not, in fact, set up to take people who are the most qualified and productive from day one once they are in America. Right. That's just the truth. There are many who are. By the way, if you're an immigrant who came to the country legally listening to the show right now, first of all, thank you. Honored to have you as part of Team Buck. But also, I'm not talking about you. I'm saying that the vast majority of people who do come to the country through immigration come in through family reunification, which is what is another way of saying chain migration, or they come in illegally. Those of you who actually went the old fashioned way, like I'm going to apply and become an immigrant to America. God bless and welcome to the family. But you are increasingly rare among immigrants into the United States. You, it is overwhelmingly who is related to somebody who's already here, which I'm sure there are lots of great people who are related to people who are here, but it's not based on merit. It's not it's not a an application process where there are objective criteria taken into account for whether someone should be here or not. Just do you have family here and you got a really big family? Well, then you get a lot of people that'll that'll come to the front of the immigration line. But Democrats understand what this means for their electoral fortunes. If, if you look at the uh, the change in California, for example, I mean, the, the demographic reality has changed in California. So it is now hard left. It is a deep blue place that is a progressive dystopia in the making. That much I can promise you. It, it is all going to come crashing down over there. It's just a question of when. Some of you are probably saying, Buck, it's already happening. Come check out what's going on in my town or city. I know. But this is this is a, a glimpse into the future. By the way, Trump was saying all that stuff about immigration at the tax policy roundtable in West Virginia. So he, wait, didn't he de- didn't he decide that he just was going to like that it was boring or whatever to talk about the stuff that he had? Oh, yeah, he did. Actually, I remember that. This was fun. That I'll start. You know, this was going to be my remarks. It would have taken about two minutes, but that would have been a little boring. A little boring. Now I'm reading off the first paragraph. I said, this is boring. Come on. We have to, we have to say, tell it like it is. Trump had prepared remarks, literally threw them like over his shoulder and decided he was just going to let it rip. He was just going to let it go. So he's talking to more about the immigration issue. Now, I think he got the message from the base. I think the Trump voting base was like, you know what, dude, we, we got to get this done. And the omnibus was not OK. So that's the good thing. The, the part of it that still has this has to be resolved is, well, what now? If we can all agree the omnibus was not in line with the promises the president made and with what the direction of the Republican Party under this president supposed to be, then what do we do next? How do we get to. That end state that we are all searching for. And I think the look, I I like the focus on immigration. I like that he's making the case publicly and we're having a discussion now that we should have been able to have 10 years ago in this country. But 
um, me- media has been complicit for a whole bunch of reasons in the big the big lies that are told constantly about immigration and the impact on the economy and politics and the future of this country. Illegal, illegal immigration. Um, so Trump also he went into an area that uh, of discussion that was somewhat reminiscent of his campaign rhetoric. So I, I do think he's returning to the original formula in a sense. And remember, this is at a tax policy roundtable, and he he went into the following. Now, Mexico has very tough policies. They can do whatever they want, which is the way it should be, to be honest. You're violating something very sacred. You're violating a border. Canada, very, very tough. And Canada is very merit-based. You come into Canada, it's got to be based on merit. With us, it's a lottery system. Pick them out. A lottery system. You can imagine what those countries put into the system. They're not putting their good ones. And remember my opening remarks at Trump Tower when I opened. Everybody said, oh, he was so tough. And I used the word rape. And yesterday it came out where this journey coming up, women are raped at levels that nobody's ever seen before. They don't want to mention that. Truth is, the human trafficking, I think I even mentioned uh, yesterday on the show, before Trump, on this show, before Trump gave his remarks today, that women who are trafficked across the border are at an an astronomically higher risk of sexual assault, of being raped, than uh, women in the general population of the United States or Mexico. Because they are in an incredibly vulnerable situation, dealing with incredibly unsavory, grotesque people. Right. Those who are trafficking, uh, trafficking illegal immigrants across the border, as we know, sometimes they'll leave them in a shipping container or they'll leave them in the uh, the bed of a, a 16 wheeler truck. And they'll just slowly asphyxiate in the heat in Texas. I remember that happened a while ago. I mean, th- these are what and the cartels are tied to this. I mean, the cartels will murder anyone for any reason. And they are the single most sophisticated human trafficking network that exists in Mexico. And human trafficking makes the cartels money. So when Mexico fails to do its part to shut down this situation, it is turning a blind eye, not just to people who want to come into the United States and work off the books and, you know, they want to pursue their version of the American dream, albeit illegally. Uh, they're also turning a blind eye to the cartels that threaten the very integrity of this of some Mexican states. Not sure across the whole country, but it's true in about five or six of the Mexico of Mexico states right now that there's just the cartels run things. You don't hear about that much here, do you? At some point, people would start to ask questions too, like why does Mexico have this level of dysfunction? What is going on over there? When do we start to point a finger at the Mexican government and say, you know, if you guys actually ran things a little bit better, maybe we wouldn't have quite the illegal immigrant problem that we do. Seems like a it seems like a fair discussion, doesn't it? You don't getting into the US from Canada, not that hard. And we don't we don't have millions and millions over many years of illegal immigrants pouring in from Canada. Why is that? Canadian government for all of its leftward tilt and uh the progressive whatever his name is. Guy's got good hair, so I'll give him that. He's got good hair. You know, you re- I respect the hair. The rest of it, you know, all his policies, I'm not a fan. But Canada, obviously, is a place that has rule of law and doesn't have the kind of systemic and endemic corruption that is pervasive in Mexico. 
You go to Mexico, and it's a disaster. The government's a disaster. And it's about to get a lot worse, by the way. If this leftist, I forget uh, the guy's name. I'll, I'll do a bit of a deep dive in my own time into the upcoming Mexican election. It could get a lot worse. By the way, I saw this report on uh, Breitbart, and before any of you say, oh, Buck, Breitbart, it, they're just linking. I, when I was at The Blaze, we used to do this. <laughs> I always found this fascinating. So when I'm working at The Blaze, sometimes we would do what is effectively aggregating, but we would take a story where we'd, we would you know, give a, a, a summarized version and then link to it, but we'd, I'd put it out sometimes. People would say, well, it came from The Blaze. I'm like, it, it's, it's a New York Times story that we're telling you about and linking. So, I mean, it's not actually... And this comes from the Mexican paper El Universal, so it's not a Breitbart-specific thing. It's it's a Mexican newspaper that's presenting this, but they give the they give an English version of it um, that the Mexican Senate has just passed a resolution seeking to end bilateral cooperation with the U.S. Uh, United States against drug cartels and immigration problems because President Trump has ordered National Guard troops to the border. They are way, way out of line when it comes to this whole illegal immigration problem. Uh, the, the, the whole mentality, as expressed by the Mexican government publicly and otherwise, from people that I talk to who have spent a lot of time down there and have worked with the Mexican government over many years, their attitude is, it's America's problem and it's America's fault. Don't ever forget that. Mexican government doesn't take responsibility for all this stuff. They're not saying, yeah, you know, maybe if, if we actually weren't just so wildly corrupt, the economy here would be better, foreign direct investment would be higher, people would want to do more business in Mexico than they currently do. Right? Maybe if people could trust that local police weren't on the payroll of massive drug lords who have people executed in the most horrific ways possible, more people would set up shop in some of the states of Mexico. But no, no, their government believes from the top down that it is overwhelmingly the problems of the cartels, illegal immigration, all of it. it is America's fault. It is America's problem. We are the reason that this exists and we should have to deal with all the consequences of it. That the Mexican Senate would pass this resolution just goes to show you. So we're not allowed to secure our border. Border Patrol can't. I mean, sorry, uh, National Guard doesn't do arrests. That's Border Patrol. National Guard would just be there to provide support so that law enforcement could direct more of their attention at the border, specifically Border Patrol, to preventing illegal crossing. And there's there's a backlash against this, according to El Universal News. And a backlash, I'm not talking about on the Mexican street, from the Mexican Senate. What does that tell you? What does it tell you about where the situation really is? And how is this not a much higher level priority for media discussion is is beyond maybe you think that i'm starting to sound a little ahab like here with talking about the problems of illegal immigration and the cartels and i just think this is one of the biggest issues facing america right now period look i i have i have real expertise in in iraq in counterinsurgency and jihadist networks and maybe i'll talk about that in the next hour but i'm just going to tell it to you straight mexico is a much bigger national security issue for us than syria is Full stop. No question about it. Meanwhile, a lot of people, oh, let's have a roundtable about, you know, what's going on. Syria, we've got U.S. troops there. It's important. I'm not minimizing it. I'm just saying on balance, the issue of drugs, illegal crossings, the cartels, transnational criminals, human smuggling, all it, it's such an, and it affects communities now all across the country, regardless of their size. 
And the politicians have either been brainwashed into thinking somehow this isn't their fault or, and I think this is more likely, just don't want to deal with the reality. They think they can keep hiding from it. And that was why when Trump finally came out and just said, look, we got big problems. Here's what they are. Everyone said, oh, my gosh, someone's finally telling us what we already know. But it's somebody who says that if you put me in charge, I'll do something about it. They're doing stuff, but not enough. So we'll keep an eye on it. All right. 844-900-2825. You want to call in? Uh, We've got a lot more coming up, my friend. So stay with me. get to it but uh, first real quick breaking news here trump says he wants to send about two to four thousand national guard members the u.s mexico border that's what just broke in the last hour so we've got some numbers now to add on to that reporting uh william in eden north carolina hey william but um i was just wondering other than the obvious drugs and violence that they run from with mexico being you know all the natural resources and stuff they have in this beautiful country why are they coming here in droves instead of building up their own country where people would want to go there instead of just vacationing in the good spots? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting, William. Mexico, in this, I think, gets lost. Mexico is not a third world country. It actually is, is pretty It's pretty well off by, by global standards. And there's incredible wealth there. Carlos Slim, I mean, there are incredible concentrations of wealth. And the wealthy aren't the ones that are coming into the United States illegally, obviously. It, it tends to be... Uh, poor people from the countryside or from slums of the major cities who are just looking for a, a better a better access into a labor market that will pay them more money. Right. So they're just looking at it from the and I understand this, by the way, I don't begrudge illegal immigrants wanting to be able to work for three X what they would do. You know, a, a day laborer in the United States is making more money than a day laborer will in Mexico. Right. And I said three X. I don't know what it is, but it's a lot more. Uh, yeah, so that's why. But I think either. you're I think the point you're making, William, is, you know, if the if people keep leaving the country, um, if people keep leaving the country, it's not going to get better. Um, assuming that the people who are leaving are the ones who might be who might be able to improve the situation. Keep in mind that the Mexican immigrant population, in the United States is sending 20 billion dollars a year back to Mexico. So, mm-hmm. the, you know, that, that that which is very different than what you have in a lot of other countries. Right. That's that's right. a big number. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, I just want to say, you know, they, um, some of the Mexican people I've known, um, some of the greatest people I've ever met, some of the most honest, hardworking people I've ever met, but I just couldn't understand why they're here in the millions instead of what, you know, what you just explained to me makes sense. But yeah, well, look, I, I hear you, William. You know, but thank you for calling in, man. Yeah. Uh, Miss Molly's almost half Mexican, so her family is Mexican. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, fun fact. There you go. Uh, let's take, uh, Jesse in Mississippi. Hey, Jesse. Hey, Buck. How you doing? I called. I love calling up messing with you, but this time I'm calling to make a public service announcement to help you out. Seeing as though my favorite talk show host hasn't really, I've never heard you say anything about this. Now, this time of day, I always listen to the radio. It's an AM station in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, WJDX. You got 20 seconds, Jesse. Huh? 20 seconds. All right. Anyway, 
that right now these days college baseball is is taking over your show between six and six thirty. And to those people listening that don't know, iHeartRadio has an app for the Bucks Buck Sexton show live. Yes, it does, Jesse. Thank you. I got a little commercial there. Guys, you can always listen to the Buck Sexton show on the iHeartRadio app, and you can always listen live there. Just need cell service or Wi Fi. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show, everyone. Uh, I I couldn't help but see in the headlines today something that, well, catches my attention because it it hits home. It's uh, something that I know quite well and, and was involved in for a time. People sometimes ask, well, Buck, what did you do for the NYPD? I worked in the intelligence division of the NYPD for about 18 months. During that period, I was uh, on a leave of absence from the uh, from the CIA, um, which means that I could go back whenever I wanted. They, you can do this. You know, it's uh, different federal agencies allow you if you want to take time with family or if you want to you know, go pursue an advanced degree. And I, I wanted to go pursue terrorists in New York City, basically, was the idea. Uh, so I spent time at the intelligence division. Very uh, interesting period in my life. Um, but now there's the intelligence division in the headlines here. And, and it goes to, this is not just about New York stuff or or even counterterrorism policy and surveillance, although those are all tied into this, clearly. Just also about how politics drives conversations that, it really shouldn't be allowed to be dictated by politics. And yet here we are. Sure enough. Here's what happened. Here's the headline from today. Yeah, NYPD has settled a surveillance suit brought by Muslim groups in New Jersey for $75,000. Um, cops have not admitted any wrongdoing in this. And the city agreed to pay $75,000 to be divided up among the 11 plaintiffs in the 2012 suit. The department also agreed to not engage in suspicionless surveillance on the basis of religion or ethnicity and to have the plaintiffs give input to a policy guide by the NYPD's Intelligence Bureau. That is literally the office that I work for, according to the Center for Constitutional Rights, which represented the plaintiffs. Um, The New Jersey suit was one of several. This is all from the Daily News today. One of several legal filing uh, filings claiming some surveillance tactics performed by cops assigned to the Counterterrorism Bureau in the years since 9-11, were unconstitutional. The practices were part of the NYPD's often maligned so-called Muslim spying program. Okay, let me, let me tell you a bit about this so-called Muslim spying program because I was part of it. So isn't that fun? Look at that. The, your, your host here was, was tied in with the headlines. Uh, and... I can uh, now there's some parts of it that I can't talk about for legal reasons, obviously, Uh, but I can tell you what was really going on and what wasn't. And here's the ultimate. Here's the problem, folks. Here's what you run into. And this this also reminds me of uh, why we had the Trump movement that we did in this country and why. It's not often mentioned these days, but just his refusal to bow to the dictates of political correctness was so powerful because we've all seen it where something that is quite obvious 
something that could not be more blatant, has to be ignored or else the left, the Democrats, the media will come for you. They'll come after you. So here's what was going on at the Intelligence Division of the NYPD. They had units set up for, and, and any kind of uh, terrorism would be immediately investigated. We had a tip line, and all of the investigations had to be formed under. This is for those of you who are actual sworn law enforcement. You know what I'm talking about. You have to, you know, have to have a criminal predicate. You had to actually have a the basis for a criminal case. That was the the only thing that went outside of that was just what we would call area familiarization. What is area familiarization? Any beat cop listening to this right now, and I say that with love, I have beat cops in my family, or beat cop in my family, I don't want to overstate it, uh, but anyone listening to this right now who's ever been a beat cop knows you, you got to know your area, so you spend time in it. You get to know the area. Who lives there? What you know? What's out of place? What's not? And it's incredible, the knowledge that's, that cops will get over time from just spending a lot of time on the streets that they patrol, right? They really know their, you got to know your beat, right? Whether you're talking about cops or journalists, know your beat. It's a phrase you'll hear. So the only place where you ever had the NYPD get in trouble for not pursuing criminal cases, but just so-called Muslim spying, Muslim surveillance was knowing where mosques were in the city, for example. And knowing that there was a particularly large, uh, let's say, Yemeni or Bangladeshi or you name it, uh, community in one part of the city. Now, that's important because if you want to do outreach efforts, if you want to, yeah, you want to know where the where the main centers of gravity are for different because you know New York has like 300 languages spoken here and it's it's quite a place, right? a city of eight million people, people from pretty much every place on the planet are here. I'm sure we have a few residents of legal residents of Antarctica who have even shown up over the years. So the NYPD wanted to know about the city. It was just terrain mapping. But because it included some mosques, which I'm pretty sure that's open information, right? Where's where's the nearest mosque in this area? Oh, okay, that's where it is. Nobody was walking in with a microphone and recording everything. And, you know, no, no, no. But just even knowing this is where you have a, uh, a large population of people of Muslim extraction in the city. And just knowing where the nearest houses of worship were for Muslims was a problem. Which, and now you're like, Buck, this is... And, and then you get to the... Other, so that's on one level. And that was, oh my gosh, they're doing all this spying on Muslims. There was no spying on Muslims. I worked with Muslims in the NYPD. There was no... There was no uh, oh, we just... We have a problem with these people, so we're going to look at their stuff. And no, no, that did not happen. Okay, what's the next level? The next level is, why do you guys have so many counterterrorism cases that involve Muslims? Which is the question people would ask. We had non-jihad units set up, right? And and even the terminology we're supposed to use to talk about this, you know, ISIS-inspired, Hezbollah-tied, et cetera, et cetera. You get on all that. You can get into a lot of specificity, but, you know, it's uh, Islamic extremism. We had units that were set up for non-Islamic extremism. And as I think I've mentioned to you before on the show, they were quite bored. I'm not saying there aren't white supremacist terrorists. There certainly are. Just not a lot of them. I'm not saying there aren't anarchist terrorists. In fact, just spoke to you earlier about 
McKinley and how uh, Chalgosh, he was, he was assassinated by a anarchist. There was a time when anarchists were actually the big, bad, scary terrorists. Tried to blow up Wall Street with a big bomb, knocking off presidents, set a whole series of events in motion with the uh, assassination of an otherwise somewhat obscure Serbian, or not Serbian, pardon me, Archduke in Serbia. Uh, that, that was a thing that happened that had some big ramifications. So anarchists used to be a big deal, but you know what? Not a lot of anarchist terrorism going on either. So what was this unit that was set up post 9-11 in a city that had been attacked and lost uh, thousands of, of uh, civilians in the World Trade Center? Uh, we set up a unit here to try and prevent that from ever happening, to help prevent it from ever happening again, working with our partners in the FBI and different federal intelligence agencies, law enforcement, military, all working together. And what was the big problem with the intelligence unit's work that all these ACLU and these different groups had? Oh, that's right. Why do you focus on so many Islamic terrorism cases? That was one of the things that came up. And the answer, and this is where you get into how Trump will speak the truth and and the media won't, or most of it won't. The answer is because most of the terrorism that we had on the radar because most of the terrorist plots that were either active or soon to be active involved Islamic extremism. It's really straightforward. It's not a complicated answer. It's not the result of some conspiracy. And, you know, we even would joke around when we're like, we'll we'll leave the, you know, the sociopolitical analysis to someone else. We're just trying to stop people from, oh, that's right, blowing up Times Square, which an attempt happened while I was working for the unit, as I've told you. Or Najib Azazi, who was of Afghan extraction, who tried to build backpack bombs to blow up the subway, the subway that I take every day, twice a day, along with millions of my fellow New Yorkers. That happened right before I joined the unit. I can't tell you about any similar plots from non-Islamic extremists over my uh, 18 months or so there. And I have friends who are still in the unit. I have friends who were in the unit before I joined. They couldn't either. So what ends up happening is you have this game that the ACLU and the leftist media play with. Oh, you're just picking on Muslims. Why are you picking on Muslims? Why are all the... And they're goading you into trying to answer the very straightforward question of why are so many of your terrorism... Why do so many of your terrorism cases, NYPD, involve Muslims? And the answer is, when I was there, an overwhelming majority... I shouldn't even say that almost entirely and without exception, every serious terrorist plot or prosecutable terrorist act that occurred in the environs of New York City. Was under the auspices of Islamic extremism, every single one. So what are we you know, you start to ask, what are we supposed to do about that? We supposed to not not investigate the guy that says that he wishes he could, you know, murder all as this happened, uh, murder all the Jews in the synagogue in Riverdale? Supposed to, supposed to let that guy go? Or, you know, the, the guy that wanted to plant a bomb in Herald Square, blow up as many people? We're supposed to just let that guy go? Because, you know, maybe he's just talking and got too many Islamic extremism cases that we're investigating right now. You know, we got, we got to get some other stuff. You know, give, give, me some of those, give me some of those right-wing uh, anti-abortion terrorists. Let's investigate some of them. Well, if... You know, if there were plots afoot, maybe we would have. But 
And every time I'd hear about that, I'd say, yeah, there was a guy 30, 30 years ago. There was a guy who did that. Why don't we investigate more of those? See, there's such a dishonesty at the heart of this. This notion that it's, uh, it's bias or it's anti-Muslim prejudice that is directing the counterterrorism activities of a unit like the NYPD, a unit that I know and worked in. We're just handling the cases that come before us based on the reality of the world around us. That was it. And you see all these smug liberals and these just these, you know, spiteful journalists that would, oh, look at what they're doing. And they're persecuting a community. And there are all kinds of procedures in place to prevent any abuse whatsoever. Um, The the unit was working within those guidelines. We had law- we had lawyers all over the place. You know, did you, is the, where's the criminal predicate for this? You know, did you, I can't even tell you. So yeah, they, they settled this for $75,000 because they didn't do anything wrong. They didn't admit any wrongdoing, but it just goes to show you, this is a game the left likes to play. It plays to their base to pretend that counterterrorism efforts are driven by prejudice and not the reality, which is that most terrorism that we have to worry about comes from Islamic extremist communities. That's it. And if you're looking within Islamic extremist communities, you're going to have more contact with just Muslims in general in these investigations and efforts than you would non-Muslims. This is, I mean, I I know I'm saying it to you, and it couldn't be more straightforward, but oh my gosh. If I walked in the New York Times editorial boardroom and said this stuff, they'd say, oh my, you know, they'd think the building was on fire. And I'm just telling you the facts, the straight up what was going on and what is going on. But lawsuits, lawsuits, lawsuits. You know, MSNBC, all oh, surveillance of Muslims. We had we were so strapped for resources. We're just trying to handle the cases that come in that we're really worried about could end up in a lot of people getting killed. Nobody was saying, yeah, let's go harass some peaceful Muslims today. That sounds like a good a good way to spend our time. And particularly the Muslims I was working with in the unit weren't like, yeah, let's go harass Muslims because we don't like them. Yet nonetheless, lawsuit after lawsuit, New York Times freaks out about it. All these different groups turn on MSNBC. I'm sure they're high fiving each other if they mention this story, which they probably won't because the NYPD didn't admit any wrongdoing. And it was only 75 G's, which in terms of a lawsuit of this kind, that's just like, let's let's just stop. OK, that's that's go away money. That's what that is. Just don't ever forget what side of this the left is on. All right, I'm going to roll. We, we got a Hillary talk coming up. Hello. Uh, Hillary's going to be joining us, kind of, in a sense, in a few moments. Uh, later on in the show, we've got Derek Scissors joining to discuss uh, China tariff war stuff, trade war slash tariffs. Uh, Kim Strassel on Scott Pruitt, who's getting all kinds of press, all kinds of uh, attention. And we'll get into that. And uh, basically, it's just going to be an awesome show. So you've made it this far. You might as well see it through. We'll be right back. So I saw this report. I have a hard time understanding how this could be the case, really. But uh, this is from the what is this? the Kansas City Star says that a third of college students are going hungry. That just strikes me. How is that? How is that the case? How is it that a third of college students are going hungry when the, the biggest problem we have in this country when it comes to food is actually uh, clinical obesity? And yet they're saying that college students 
I mean, if you're bar, can't you borrow money for other expenses beyond just the tuition? So I don't, I don't even understand how this is possible. Because I'm always looking at this and I'm thinking to myself, you know, what are the ways that we can be more of what's the word adaptive when it comes to our educational system in this country? I, I want to spend more time on education in general. Here, we we haven't talked about it much in a while. I think I mentioned Betsy DeVos. And how she she became, you know, she, she got kind of the assault, the full leftist assault at one point. But then they they moved, you know, the eye of Sauron moved from Betsy DeVos to Scott Pruitt. We'll be talking about that with Kim Strassel from The Wall Street Journal in the next hour. Um, but, you know, here I look at this and I say, if, if college students are so strapped that they are, are going hungry and and homeless as well, it says in this article, uh then I don't understand why we would think that it's a good idea for, for them to be going to college in the first place. Here's what they say. Uh, at the end of the semester, we start recognizing students no longer have food on their meal plans, or maybe their financial aid has run out, or they've given up a job so they can study, so they no longer have that income. And that lost income could also impact housing. Nearly as many of those who are food insecure don't have secure housing. Huh. I'd have to I have to look into this a little more. It's, it just strikes me as as not feasible. I mean, how is it that you could be borrowing? I know for basically any college student without doesn't matter what your background of payments to credit cards, and everything else, anyone can borrow the money. So they're not borrowing enough, I suppose, that they can cover some additional expenses. They say nine percent of university students uh, were fully homeless. 12% of community college students. You know, if, if the financial situation is that dire, wouldn't it be better to not be in college and get a job? Any job, right? It, that strikes me as, and then try to transition into community college once you've got a stable paying job for a while. And I, I'm, I'm trying to see, this just struck me as a little, how is this the case? 30%, uh, 36% of university students at half of community college students fit the category of housing insecure in the past year. Well, uh, what does that, what does that mean? Um, nearly as many as those who are food insecure don't, uh, uh, includes those living in shelters, hotels, cars, tents, or couch surfing at friends' houses. Well, if you're couch surfing at a friend's house, that's, that doesn't strike me as, I mean, there were plenty of people I knew in college who went through periods of time where, especially they'd like live on the, the first summer, they'd live on a, I mean, heck, I had to crash on my parents' couch for a while as an adult. It's a whole other story. So I, don't, I don't really get this, folks. i got to dig into this one some more. But my, my initial thought is, if you don't have money for food, but you're paying money for tuition, and you're an adult, maybe work and think about college a little bit later? We'll be right back. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. I saw the stuff today about The Rock running, and I have to tell you that uh, I, I've, I've said it before. I don't know what The Rock is cooking, but but if, in fact, he... I know. That was amazing, Buck. Take a bow. Take a bow. This, if, in fact, that he, if in fact, he did run, I, I think he would be a, a strong candidate. And I know people feel like, oh, Buck, come on, that's crazy. Are we really in a place now, my friends, where we could say that anyone 
running for president is outside the bounds of what we would expect. Have we not learned any lessons yet? And on the one hand, uh, we have the continued appearances of Hillary, who was supposed to be the president, was not the president, saying stuff out there, uh, including that she is partly responsible for the Me Too, or no, yes, I'm sorry, her loss accelerated the Me Too movement play. I believe that it was a wave that was building and building and building. I think my losing probably accelerated that wave, but the wave was coming. They're having that moment right now in Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, and there's a referendum about loosening abortion restrictions in the Republic of Ireland, which is part of the overall wave that I'm talking about. People saying, you know, women not only should speak up and be heard, but laws need to change. And, you know, this is not just an American phenomenon. This is a a global one. I mean, wow. There's a lot going on there. Like, for one, Hillary now thinks that abortion for all nine months of a pregnancy is part of the Me Too movement. That's new. I I had never heard anyone say that before. Uh, I'll leave that aside because that is a very serious topic, but uh, you know how I feel about that. Uh, But just returning to the notion of how Hillary is a form of psychotic solipsism. She really believes that what's going on around the world is a direct result of her pathetically inept political campaign to be president of the United States. And she won't stop. She won't go away. It's amazing, isn't it? Does she really think we need her? You know, I, I sometimes talk about Larry King who wants to come back into the game, you know, the whole thing, and and how it, someone needs, like, Larry's handlers need to be like, Larry, it's okay, you know. Hang out hang out in Malibu. You know, the beach is lovely. You don't, you don't need to do this anymore. There's other things you could turn your attention to. You had a long run. With Hillary, she's, she doesn't know what to do with herself unless she has a microphone or a camera and gets to just wax philosophical about everything because that's the way that she likes to be. She, she, I guess otherwise she'd have to deal with, you know, what is this whole situation with Bill? What has she actually done with, with herself uh, as, a, as a politician? What, you know, as, as, she, as you move beyond the, the thrill of trying to win, in politics, I feel like the the natural progression would be: What have I done for people? Have, have I been good? Now you might say, Buck, she's a narcissist. She's going to think what she's done is amazing. Maybe, but maybe there's a part of her that feels like there would be a uh, a, a terror late at night that would overtake her mind in thinking of what she's really stood for and what her contribution to public life has been. Whether you think that that's a fair assessment of her public life or not is irrelevant. I, I just think that she might have. She might have some uh, some interesting and dark moments ahead where she looks back on this all. And so it's easier to throw herself into the fray and the mix and you know, just keep on talking about how she was the first female candidate. Here's another good report is, well, of course I vote for a woman, just not that woman, meaning me. Um, and that was really interesting. And as soon as that election happened, you could just see the press, particularly the right-wing press, and Republicans turn on people like Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris. And all of a sudden, they were the ones being criticized for speaking out of turn, speaking up, being shrill, being aggressive, you know, all the words meant to put down women. 
So this is an ongoing challenge that uh, we have to come to grips with. Hillary lost because women were being mistreated. That's what she's saying here. Hillary, you know the song, uh, What is it uh, Whitney Houston, I'm Every Woman, right? That's, that's Hillary's approach. She's every woman. The, the fate of all womankind was tied up in Hillary's election, which, remember, for Hillary to be elected, they had to not charge her with federal felonies that she committed, and they had to ignore the fact that she ran the biggest graft and influence-peddling scheme the planet has ever seen. Or influence-peddling, forget graft. We'll be right back, team. Stay with me. Many years, no president wanted to go against China economically, and we're going to do it. We had a trade deficit of almost $500 billion last year with China. And I have great respect for the president of China, President Xi. He's a friend of mine. And I'm a friend of his, and I like him a lot, but he's representing China, and I'm representing the United States of America. And it was time that we did something. We can't continue to allow this to happen, where hundreds of billions of dollars is taken out of our country and our system. Huge focus right now of the administration, trade, and specifically China and NAFTA. To give us a real sense of what's going on here and what we all need to know about it, we've got Derek Scissors on the line. He's a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. He focuses on the Chinese and Indian economies, but it's just a general trade expert. Derek, great to have you back. Yeah, I'm glad to be back. Thanks for inviting me. So let's just get into so we're going to China and NAFTA, which I know we could do whole three-hour shows on just those topics, but we'll, we'll go through them quickly and just focus on what the folks need to know. China is now retaliating. They're talking about putting more tariffs on more U.S. goods. People are saying, well, this is escalating. It's getting worse. It's getting worse. Is there still a bit of exaggeration and hysteria here, or are you concerned about the direction of U.S. trade relations with China? Uh, I think there's still some exaggeration uh, going on. Um, I think the president is right and the administration is right when they say China has been hurting the United States through its trade practices um, for a long time. We didn't have a lot of hysteria about that. The hysteria seems to have started when the U.S. retaliated. Now, I'm not saying the U.S. retaliation is perfect. It's not. But it's, it's a little weird that we've had bad Chinese trade practices for years and years. The U.S. does something about it, and now there's a big problem. The problem, as the president has said, uh, existed long before the U.S. tariffs were announced. And I think one one issue that comes up, at least for, for, for those who are trying to get a sense of why there's such a, a, a near consensus, it feels like at least a, a media consensus about how how self-evidently bad any kind of tariffs are. If there's such a terrible idea, so self-defeating, why would China have had them in place for so long and had such growth? Well, China has done a lot of things, not just tariffs. So, you know, one of the ways you would overcome, let's say, a 25% tariff on imported cars is you steal the technology for foreign cars and then you make them at home. Um, so your people still get the cheap cars. They just don't get the foreign cars cheaply. Uh, so you can overcome tariffs, no problem, with other policies, whether they're good or bad. I, I've said many times, I'm a trade expert, but tax reform is more important than trade for the United States. 
Um, now, the, the, I, the reason why tariffs are bad, worse in the U.S. than most countries, is we really value our consumers, our, their buying power. We don't want goods to become more expensive. So tariffs absolutely should be a last resort. But the last resort sometimes gets reached. And when we're dealing with it with a, a bad trade partner, which is what China is, and it's a big trade partner, it's not some small country, um, you, have to, you have to do things you don't really want to do because you're trying to get them to change their bad behavior. They're not going to do it just by talking to them. What is the uh, what is the future and what does it look like when we would uh, be concerned, Eric? I mean, uh, how how can we kind of put in place now some sense of of what the metrics would be for, OK, this U.S. China trade war, whatever people want to call it. But right. The back and forth over tariffs, I guess people say it's a trade war. Uh, it's something to really be concerned about. When do we cross that threshold or, or is it even possible, really? You can. I mean, the U.S. and China have a big trade relationship. If you include both goods and services, uh, last year trade volume was over $700 billion. Um, that's, you know, close to a quarter of total U.S. trade. Um, but I would, I, you know, if we really got into it where we're putting, we're in the hundreds of billions of dollars of goods affected, not the tens of billions, that's one way to get worried. Um, another way is if it, if it branches out beyond trade. In other words, if we start as a trade uh, battle and then you know China is talking about oh we're going to change our currency policy and the US is talking about oh you know we're going to start kicking Chinese students out of the country that those that tells you things have gotten out of control um, US trade last year was 2.9 trillion dollars for all for all goods and services you're talking about 50 billion dollars 100 billion dollars doesn't matter that much so you could get a lot more trade or we could move beyond trade and that's when I would start to worry we're speaking to Derek Scissors. He's a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. He's a trade expert. All right, Derek. Now, for folks listening, you know, we, we hear NAFTA a lot. We're all familiar with what it is, you know, North American Free Trade Agreement. Okay, great. What, what was it intended to do at the time of inception? What was the purpose of NAFTA? Uh, you know, of course, the people who, who worked on it, which were in the, in the Clinton administration, uh, the first Bush administration, the older President Bush, and then the Clinton administration are going to tell you different things now than they did 25 years ago. But, I mean, what I would say as a purpose was we thought um, – Let's have an integrated area which is bigger than the United States. The United States is, a, is an integrated economy. Obviously, we all use the dollar. You know, you can go from state to state; doesn't matter. We wanted to do that not politically, not for citizenship, but for economically for a larger area, so that we could sell to more people, produce more, and in particular, because we already had a free trade agreement with Canada dating back to the 1980s. Uh, sorry, yeah, the 1980s. We wanted uh, Mexico to become a richer country. And if that had worked, it would have solved a lot of problems. A richer Mexico means less illegal immigration. A richer Mexico buys more U.S. goods. And the idea was bringing the U Mexico closer to the American economy would make Mexico richer, more stable, a better partner. That, I think, was the goal. How we do with the goal? Well, I mean, you know, people don't remember far, that far back, but Mexico has had debt crisis. They, you know, they're coming up to an election, and everyone's worried about the results of the election. Well, there used to be a dictatorship. Um, they used to have a lot more state ownership of their economy than they do now. Um, so some parts of the goal have been achieved. And I think when people get angry at NAFTA, they, they may not remember what Mexico was like in 1991 and 1992. But other parts clearly haven't. I mean, we still have an illegal immigration problem. Uh, the Mexican economy right now is not very good. 
growing very quickly at all. And, and I think the lesson there is people should not over-promise on trade agreements. The, tr- the idea of a, the trade deal with Mexico was to help. It wasn't going to solve the problem. We were going to still have problems in Mexico and in U.S.-Mexico relations. And if we upgrade NAFTA, we make it better, which is what I hope, we're still going to have those problems. It's not a solution. It's, it's just part of a solution. Now, now, the president's been very clear that on NAFTA, he, he says, you know, bad deal, terrible deal, things... Now he he is prone to uh, to go in you know strongly in one direction with his assessments of these things. I think that's one way to say it. Uh, but what what is a problem uh, with the NAFTA agreement as it stands now? Where does NAFTA fail to to be something that today people could look at and say, yeah, this is a good idea? Well, I have a different view of NAFTA than the president does. I he and I have some similar views on China, but but not on NAFTA. So. Um, uh, what I would like to do is update NAFTA. Uh, you know, NAFTA was signed, went into effect in 1994. We have a whole area of digital commerce now where people buy things online. The U.S. is very good at that. That would be, a, you know, to have a NAFTA covering digital commerce and open Mexico up to U.S. digital commerce. It's, you know, people, it's not just nerds. I mean, everybody sells digitally. Uh, so I think that's a benefit to the American economy. I think there's, you know, plenty of other ways to upgrade NAFTA and, and in both Mexican and U.S. interests. Um, I think a lot of the problems with NAFTA might stem from immigration, uh, where people are upset with the Mexican government uh, and the U.S. government, frankly, for for uh, illegal immigration. Illegal immigration is good. Illegal immigration is breaking the law. And we're not going to solve that with an upgraded NAFTA. So I think people, part of the suspicion of NAFTA comes on the immigration side. And my answer to that is, look, I think we should upgrade NAFTA. I think it'll benefit the United States, but it's not going to solve the illegal immigration problem. What would happen if Trump, just, just theoretically, just so I can understand this, if Trump was just like, you know what, we're going to scrap NAFTA. No more. Well, I mean, uh, what, what, here's the problem with that. I think that's all loss and no gain for the United States. And I'll explain why. That, that's, it's not, I'm not trying to exaggerate here. Um, if we scrap NAFTA, uh, we can sell less to Mexico and we can sell less to Canada. And they're our second and third largest partners. Uh, and Canada is our largest export partner ahead of China. China's our largest partner overall, but that's mostly because they sell to us. So we're, we're, we're messing with trade with our second and third largest trade partners. Now, there are people, plenty of people, who are going to say, well, good, we'll produce more goods here. But that's not what's going to happen. I mean, if we, if we get into a fight with Mexico and Canada, we're just going to end up importing more from China. And then if we get into a fight with China, too, we could end up importing more from Indonesia or India or Italy. I'm making up countries that begin with I. Um, you, you don't get anywhere picking on one trade partner. Uh, if, you, if you really don't like trade, you really got to go after them all. Because if you just... If if you just cut off Mexico, for example, someone else is going to supply what's being made in Mexico right now. And all that's going to happen to the U.S. is that we get to sell less to Mexico. So just breaking NAFTA, is, it, to me, is just a complete negative for the United States because other countries will just replace Canada and Mexico in sending goods to, you, uh, to us, and we will not be able to sell as much to Canada and Mexico. Do you think that the, much of the president's ire about NAFTA has to do really with getting leverage for immigration discussions? Or what do you think his game plan is? Yeah, I, the president very clearly has a style. It makes perfect sense uh, as a businessman. And, you know, he was elected with this style. So um, I, I think he's being honest in, in his behavior in the sense that this is this is who he is and he didn't try to hide it. He likes to yell and scream and threaten and, and see how people react. Um, he did that with South Korea. We were going to cancel the U.S.-Korea free trade agreement. And then, you know, we got some concessions out of it. And now we're not going to cancel it. He's trying to do that with China, in my opinion. He's trying to do it with NAFTA, in my opinion. Um, 
I don't, you know, I don't see Mexico as a bad trade partner. I, I kind of see them as a bad immigration partner, but not as a bad trade partner. So I don't really want to threaten them. I, I, I do see China as a bad trade partner. So I agree with it there. But the president's being consistent across these issues because that's who he is. I don't, you know, he either wants a trade trade concessions or he wants immigration concessions. I don't know that he's necessarily expecting both. But I think the rhetoric is, look, you need to give me something because I don't like the way things are now. And if you're not going to give me anything, then I'm going to take action that's going to hurt you. Um, and that's, you know, that's a perfectly reasonable approach as long as the goals are reasonable. If Mexico gives us something on trade or immigration and we're not asking for the moon, I think that's a, that's a, that's a good approach to NAFTA. Derek Scissors, everyone, of the American Enterprise Institute, AEI.org, if you want to read more. And uh, Derek, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. Today we're going to roll into a break. we got uh, Hour 3 coming up in just a few minutes here. We will talk about the firing of Kevin Williamson, noted conservative columnist from formerly of National Review, probably soon to be once again National Review, fired from the Atlantic because of the left-wing digital outrage mob. Uh, We'll talk about that and uh, also get into some of my thoughts on a whole bunch of other things. I can't remember what they are off the top of my head because sometimes I'm talking and looking at the clock at the same time. Hour three is coming up. Stay with me. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Hey, welcome to Hour 3 of the Buck Sexton Show. I don't come on radio and rant and rave and scream. Uh, I think anger is cheap. I think it's easy. I can always find a subject that I know would get people all fired up and just start yelling about it. And those terrible Republicans who are cowards and those terrible Democrats who are cowards. It's boring. It's boring. Sometimes it's necessary. But to do it as a default position, I think, is just simply laziness for a host. With all that said, I have to tell you that I'm pretty damn annoyed that the Atlantic has fired Kevin Williamson. And let me tell you what's uh, going on here. Uh, Kevin Williamson is a columnist for National Review. Uh, National Review is a journal of conservative opinion, as I'm sure all of you listening know. And it's been around for many decades, founded by William F. Buckley. And it's something that I have been reading since I was back in college. Now, I know that Many of them, not all of them, by the way, many of them were wrong on the issue of Trump, at least his feasibility as a candidate and the likelihood of him winning. And I think that many of them were wrong, but well-intentioned and ethical in being wrong when it came to their refusal to support Trump during the primary. Uh, Most of them, I would note, have switched over and would now say that they call balls and strikes when it comes to the Trump administration. But they're generally, I don't know all of them, I know a number of them personally, uh, good guys and gals who work there, who try very hard to put forward a product that is thoughtful and that is uh, worthwhile. Now, I've, I've never worked for National Review. I've published a few things with them, but I just take this somewhat personally because as a conservative in the media space, 
I can't help but notice that the digital outrage mob can come for any one of us at any point in time. The Atlantic is a leftist journal of opinion, but it's supposed to be sane left. You know, it's not uh, it's not far left like the nation. It's not basically a socialist rag. It publishes a whole range of writers and many of them very talented. But it had it decided recently that it would hire Kevin Williamson. Now, this immediately got scrutiny because Kevin is a, a conservative. He's been with National Review for over a decade and they went to work complaining about it. The left, the outrage mob, they gathered together, they grabbed their little digital pitchforks and torches and looked and looked and eventually found some statements that Kevin had made about how he thought that abortion should be a hanging offense. Now, without getting into the specifics of how offensive or 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 not that comment is uh, without getting into whether it was okay or not for him to say it that the atlantic would hire a talented conservative away from national review and then fire him summarily this was not hidden this was not uh, in any way something that they unearthed that was trying to be shielded from public view kevin had put this out on twitter Kevin had, I think, said something along the same lines in a podcast. They made a decision to hire this writer, and then because the left was so upset, they fired him. Now, I can tell you, I'm not a, a friend of Kevin's. Uh, we've, never, we've never had a, even a social moment together. Uh, there are some guests who, those of you who have listened to me for a while, you, you know who they are, who are really dear friends. You know, people who, when they either... Uh, come through New York City or whenever there's an opportunity, we'll get together and and talk about all things, including you know politics and what we do on the show. But just talk in general. Kevin's not one of those. I barely know the guy, but I've had him on my show in the past because he's very thoughtful and he's an incredibly talented writer. So his firing is an abject act of cowardice by The Atlantic and is a reminder. And this is why I'm angry about it of just how feckless, lacking in principle, and utterly detestable the so-called intellectual left is at this point in time. It's been getting worse and worse with each passing year. But they have turned public debate into a minefield for people's careers, for their livelihoods. They would rather find a way to take a conservative out to remove him or her from the realm of ideas than actually try to fight back against the ideas. To win in a fair and worthwhile contest, that's not their goal. To destroy, to eliminate. It's really actually quite Soviet, if you will, in its approach. To brand all conservatives counter-revolutionaries so that they can be summarily expelled from public life. This is true for written journals like The Atlantic and The New York Times, for example, which has a somewhat conservative writer named Barry Weiss. I'm not even sure she's a, I think she's actually a Democrat, uh, but too conservative for The New York Times. I think she ran afoul of them for an article a while back on the Me Too movement or something along those lines, although I, I can't exactly remember. But the journals of opinion, the editorial pages 
have been increasingly zero-sum affairs. You either are on their side or you are to be destroyed. This is true in TV as well. When was the last time you saw a titan of cable news go up against someone of similar stature? Truth is, you're not going to see one of the top hosts from the right go up against a host on the left because nobody wants to risk losing. Nobody wants to be in a position where they could be humiliated and have social media shouting about how they're so they were so wrong or they look so foolish. And it's just obvious that there's no good faith on either side now. We don't want public debate, really. We are increasingly forced into a bunker or a trench, if you will. And you can try to cross no man's land to meet with the other side. But it's very likely that as a conservative, you will get mowed down. You see this with CNN, for those of you who have the stomach to turn it on. They have two categories for conservatives. Useful Trump bashers and basically Alex Jones. And that's it. And that is how they view you if you go on their air. They will be somewhat polite and uh, cordial to you if you are there to just talk about how Trump is disgusting and he's the worst and, oh, I'm a real conservative and Trump is so bad. And they will have you there as a a zoo animal in the cage to have food thrown at you if you want to take a pro-Trump position. That's it. And they wonder why there has been a populist consolidation on the right. They wonder why the smart, talented, ethical, worthwhile conservatives overwhelmingly stay away from their networks, stay away from trying to write in their journals of opinion because you subject yourself to the whims of their digital media mob. This is really dangerous for discourse in this country. This is actually something that has long-term ramifications that I don't think the left really understands. They think that they are just racking up win after win. The more scalps they can take of conservatives, the more powerful their side becomes. And there's truth to that. But what they don't understand is that this profession of journalism and of punditry and the whole cable news business is really premised on an underlying idea. And that is that we should inform the public and we hope that the best ideas win, especially in the area of public policy, because it's what's best for the country that we're all supposed to care about. We may have different ways of getting there, but we will air them and may the best idea win. We have turned away from that. We are now a society that increasingly has to face a left wing that is all about character assassination, boycotts, firings, reprisals for wrong think, if you want to borrow from Orwell, and a conservative side that's just sick of it. I'm fortunate in that I have a tremendous amount of leeway to tell you the truth here on this show. Do you know why I have that leeway? Because you listen, because you turn your radio dial to the show when it comes on, because you download the podcast, because some of you will visit our sponsors and show that we have a reach and that we have a community, that we are a tribe. And that's why I can tell you things that are true. If I were employed by one of the major non-Fox networks, as I have been in the past, I would be constantly censored, undermined, 
and feeling the totalitarian grip of the social justice warrior left that no longer has any interest in exchanging ideas, in debating concepts and principles. They just want submission, which perhaps is why they have a particularly a particular affinity for Islamist supremacists. But that's a discussion for another time. I don't even really know Kevin. I just know his writing. And he's so good at it that he makes other writers envious of his talent on left and right. That he got fired from the Atlantic is to their everlasting shame, but it is just another data point that tells us the left has lost its mind and no longer even wishes to get it back. They just want to silence people. They just want submission. They will not engage. And unfortunately, that means we have to act accordingly. All right, we're rolling a quick break here, team. I'll, I'll be right back. All right, everyone, so Scott Pruitt, the head of the EPA, is embattled, and a lot of people are giving him a tough time. I even saw an interview on Fox where it looked like they were really poking at Pruitt. What's true, what's not? We have Kim Strassel with us to answer those questions. She is a columnist. In fact, she's on the editorial board for the Wall Street Journal and also a fantastic author. Kim, thank you so much for joining. It is great to be here, Buck. So what's going on with Pruitt? Is it really is he doing bad things or is this the media trying to take down another Trumper? Well, you and I both know that Scott Pruitt's biggest sin, his only real sin is that he is one of Donald Trump's most aggressive reformers, and he's taken on all of those uh, green-held beliefs uh, and done a lot, probably done more for reform than anyone out there, from the Clean Power Plan, getting rid of that, to the waters of the United States, to making a priority of cleaning up real pollution like Superfund sites, to the new CAFE standards, and the left hates this. And we've seen that when they can't roll something back, uh, because he's got the authority to do this, they go for character assassination. Now, they've been making a big deal about flights, about pay raises for some of his personnel. Uh, I saw something about $50 a night to stay in a room in a condo. I'm like, they're really digging deep here. I mean, this is like the Washington Post has got their best on whether Pruitt was in the room or if he was just renting it for his daughter or something. What is all that? We have gone down the rabbit hole here. I mean, this started out a couple months ago. Uh, by them scrutinizing uh, flights that he had made overseas, uh, in particular to a, a G7 conference last year in Italy, and then another trip to Morocco, and they said, oh, look at these costs, so excessive. Of course, the joke is uh, EPA has you know, provided uh, us numbers uh, that show the trips that were taken by his predecessors, Gina McCarthy and Lisa Jackson. Um, and it turns out, you know, their spending was equal to, if not more, than anything that Scott Pruitt has done. So this seems to be very much a, a case of one-sided uh, reporting, especially given if you add in uh, the security costs that Mr. Pruitt requires, given he gets death threats, which was, I don't think, something that happened to Obama employees. Um, on the condo, the ethics office at the EPA has come out, said they reviewed the lease they stayed in, 
that if you add it up over a month, it's $1,500 a month. It was essentially one room, uh, no kitchen, no full kitchen, no telephone line. Uh, it was kind of a room in a larger complex. Um, and they said that it was of reasonable market value what was paid. So, you know, this seems to be people bringing up anything they can just to to try to take them out. We've seen this before. You you go out there, you try to rise up a groundswell and then get Trump's attention and have Trump fire somebody. Why is the White House or a better question is the White House, Kim, backing away from Pruitt, though, or is that also a construct of the media? I saw that you had one of the uh, Hogan Gidley, who's one of the spokespersons from the White House, just said, I can't speak to Scott Pruitt's future or something like that. Everyone said, oh, well, it must be very short. Is that true? Do we have any sense of that? I have no idea. You know, the, the, they, there's been some reporting out there saying that, oh, they were unhappy because Pruitt was off on a media tour and they hadn't wanted him to be. Uh, maybe the president's not happy. We never know. Uh, but I will tell you this, Buck. You know, the president makes a big deal out of loyalty uh, of, for his people. He said they owe him loyalty. But that's got to be a two-way street. And if he throws... Scott Pruitt over the side, a guy who has been one of the most able reformers in Washington, and by the way, done things that most people don't have the guts to do. Can you give us some of what he's done, by the way, Kim, for folks listening? Because I think that there's this consensus opinion that's formed of, oh, gosh, Pruitt, he's just acting like he's, you know, uh, uh, this big, important guy and he needs to go and he's a liability for the administration. What has Pruitt been up to? That's good. Oh, my gosh. Oh, it's incredible. If you if you are opposed to the Obama administration's decision to impose a carbon control program and run coal out of business without any congressional authority to do so, you will appreciate Scott Pruitt because he is uh, revoking those rules. Um, if you are not a believer in the extraordinary uh, CAFE fuel efficiency standards the Obama administration put in that was limiting consumer choice and adding huge amounts to the cost of vehicles, you'll like Scott Pruitt because he's revising them. Um, if you believe Superfund sites are an issue, you'll like Scott Pruitt because he's finally, for the first time in more than a decade, putting an emphasis on cleaning those up rather than all of these other little mirages that the Obama administration were running after. So he's done a great deal to restore law and order at an agency that over the past eight years has spent its time trying to take over in a power grab pretty much every piece of the United States landscape and, and run roughshod over Congress and other agencies. Kim Strassel, everybody. She's at the Wall Street Journal. Read her latest there, wallstreetjournal.com, and uh, keep an eye out for her next one. Kim, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, and uh, we appreciate hearing from you. Thank you, Buck. You know, i got to tell you guys, I, I listen to all the different broadcasts out there about Pruitt, and I've, I've been reading Kim's column, and she's like, what is going on here? This guy is getting thrown under the energy-efficient Prius bus, and it's not okay. It's not right. You know, there's there's clearly something up here. And I got to tell you, the one thing the left does and we'll be, you know, this is, hey, the the Kevin Williams thing is a perfect example of this in in another way. The left protects their own. The left does not let their warriors go out there and fight and then come back and have their own side turn on them. You know, with conservatives. You know, conservatives seem to like martyrs for the cause. You know, go out there, get your career ruined, get annihilated, and 
we'll write something nice about you in the Weekly Standard or something. I mean, you don't really, you don't see the same effort to support those who support the cause. And it sounds like Pruitt's doing good stuff. We should have his back. All right, speaking of back, we'll be back in just a few. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Now, I have to tell you all, I have a little bit of a bias. I, I hate cruise lines. I, I, just, I just do. And so there's a little part of me that always feels like, ha, I knew it. Every time you have one of these stories about the cruise ship from hell, because I just feel, there are a few things going on here. One. I don't like ever being in a place that I can't leave. And that is true of basically all ships. I also don't like being on the ocean because I get seasick, which if you've ever been seasick is pretty much the most horrible thing on the planet. It's like a really bad hangover except worse and you've done it to yourself and you can't escape and it's terrible. So I'm obviously not some... And people say, oh, Buck, put the put the wrist thing on and just take some... Uh, what do you call it? Dr- take some Dramamine. No, I refuse because there are so many wonderful places that have dry land where I can be. Why would I want to spend my vacation on a cruise? Now, you can come at me on this one. I know people say, Buck, I've, I've been on wonderful cruises. They're beautiful. The food's amazing. You've never, and I've never done one. So I am, I am throwing stones while in my little hut of ignorance when it comes to cruises. I, I get that. That all said, put this one in the maybe Buck was right category. You know, you have these... Stories that come out about a you know outbreak of some you know funky disease you know people are like oh this cruise and everything was great and then all of a sudden you had you know norovirus and it's it's in the food supply and everyone's getting sick and all of a sudden you're on this twelve hundred person floating petri dish out there in the ocean no escape you know no no where to go really and you're stuck um, I think there was a one as well that also had a did it have a some kind of a power outage or the engine stopped and people were they were stuck out there for any bad things happened. But this one, this just went up on Fox News and I, I sent it around because, look, there's some cruises are the sun dried tomatoes of and those of you who know what I'm talking about. They're the sun dried tomatoes of the vacation world. You just you just don't need them. We'll talk more about sun dried tomatoes in a few minutes. But the Norwegian cruise line, uh, the Norwegian cruise line decided that it would do maintenance while people were on their cruise. But by maintenance, they actually meant do massive reconfiguration of rooms and construction. And the the quotes on this thing, and it was, by the way, it was a long cruise. It was from, I think, uh, where was it? New York? I forget where. But make it all the way around to L.A. No, it wasn't New York. Where was it? It's left somewhere else. I forget. Um, it, it went through the Panama Canal. It was 16 days. It was described as 16 days of hell, this Norwegian cruise. And I got to tell you, it's not surprising to me. But this is always my nightmare, that once you're in a place and you have no leverage, you can't. That's why I don't like flying. You're at someone else's mercy. You're on a cruise ship. What what are you going to do? You're going to demand the cruise ship not stink and be terrible. They got your money. You're already there. And in this case, they started doing heavy construction. Think about that. You were literally on a floating construction site for your holiday. And Norwegian Cruise Lines thought this was okay. 
They've slammed uh, the passengers have slammed the ship's horrible nonstop construction atmosphere. Uh, and, and they say that dust and debris from the construction littered the entire ship. And there were there was like crap all over the deck. It just there are photos. You got to ch- it's on Fox uh, Fox News right now. You can check it out. Foxnews.com. Uh, but it just goes to show you that my, sometimes my prejudices about cruise ships, I feel pretty confident in them. And there are so many wonderful places that you can get to quickly with a plane or, or even a, a car. Why get on a cruise ship when you're not? And I know people say, oh, you stop at ports of call. No, 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 no. I'm sleeping on dry land. I don't mess around with that. You can call me closed-minded. You could call me curmudgeonly, and you'd be correct. But Buck doesn't do no cruises. That's not. That's just not how I do it. And with that, we got roll call coming up. So stay right there, team. Keeping it real. Team Buck, it's time for roll call. Yeah, we got a harmonica dubstep intro there. That is some funky stuff, my friends. Don't worry, we'll get something else for you tomorrow. We just like to keep you on your toes. You're like, what what am I going to hear today in Roll Call? Maybe it will be a mixture of traditional East Asian folk music with uh, Caribbean calypso or something. I don't know. So, nonetheless, uh, here's what we got going on with Roll Call. Uh, We have, first up... Oh, by the way, if you want to send us your thoughts, if you want to send us your latest official team buck at gmail.com or facebook.com slash buck sexton. All right. First off on roll call, we have Alan. Love the show, but your face. LOL. Just kidding there, Buck. You were talking about giving news people a hug. And I have to say with a stern face and a stiff voice. No. The only people I ever hug are those that I've had relations with or my family. So back up, Buckman. LOL again. Wow, Alan finds himself very entertaining. Uh, I've noticed that you aren't reading all your Facebook messages as I see three above that have not been seen yet. I understand you're a busy man, and I don't blame you for not being able to see those. Just hope, I hope you see the comedy gold. Uh, well, I'm trying, Alan. I read as much as I can. Occasionally some get lost in the box here because we get... A, a huge volume of uh, Facebook messages coming in, but I, I stay up late at night and I try to read as, as many of them as I can. So I, I promise you I will I will stay on it and I'll keep reading through them. Uh, next up, we have Kayla, who writes, uh, Hey, Buck, catching up on the podcast from yesterday, and I'm loving the random switch-ups of roll call music. See? Exactly. Not only random switch-ups, but random music as the random switch-ups. There you go. Uh, also, I love your random plugs about being gluten intolerant, as I, too, have a gluten allergy. I'd love to hear more about your journey as a celiac and how you make it through day-to-day life. Love the show. Shields high. Kayla. Kayla, I only found out that I had celiac disease about six years ago. It was actually very early on in my media career. And... I can tell you that that it, it coincided with the early days of me being on radio, and I was really sick and had been on uh, cycles of antibiotics over the course of, of a bunch of months, maybe four or five months of different antibiotics, which 
now I know antibiotics are great and they're life-saving in a lot of a lot of cases and a lot of capacities, but you don't want to abuse or misuse them trying to find a, you know, a, a bacteria that's not there, right? Just take them because you're hoping something good happens. Uh, so it, it was a rough, rough patch there for a while. I wasn't even sure I'd be able to make it through my original Saturday show on some days. I had to bring in uh, Gatorade with me into the original Freedom Hut for for weeks. And I was just starting the show, too, and I uh, refused to stop. And I decided that no matter no matter what would happen, they would have to drag me out of that radio studio. If I passed out, well, then I passed out. So that's uh, and in terms of being gluten intolerant here in New York City. And by the way, gluten allergy is a little different from gluten intolerant for those who care, which I assume is probably very a small percentage. Right. It's like I'm sitting here talking about peanut allergy. You only care about it if you got it or if someone you know has it. If not, you're like, whatever. Why can't I eat my peanuts on the plane? Uh, but gluten allergy is more of a sensitivity to it, and gluten intolerance refers specifically to celiac disease, which has been around for a, a very long time. In the early days of celiac disease, they would uh, put ba- – because babies, so you're born this way. It's actually a an autoimmune disorder. It's not an allergy. It has nothing to do with histamine and your body's response to you know uh, outside things in the air. No, no, no. It is actually an autoimmune issue, so it's entirely in the gastrointestinal tract. And uh, babies would uh, could die from it, and, and they would keep feeding, you know, feeding them and feeding them, and or, or you know, t- t- more toddlers than babies. But uh, the, the moment they introduced grains into their diet, uh, they would get very, very sick, and they'd lose their hair, and and they realized, well, if you just give them bananas, all of a sudden they start the hair starts to grow, and they. And it was because it was gluten-free before they even knew what was gluten-free. So anyway, as you can tell, I get uh, passionate about the subject. I I follow a couple of biotechnology companies just out of interest, not even out of uh, financial interest, which is true of some other biotech companies that I know of, uh, because I'm hoping that they can develop a cure for celiac disease. That's one of the things. If I could give you a, a good thing to think about, I am hopeful that in the next, you know, 10 years or so, there's going to be some really great breakthrough cures of uh, afflictions that we all have to be on the lookout for. Obviously, top of the list, cancer. Uh, there are a whole bunch of other ones, though. Um, yeah, Alzheimer's. There's a, a lot of, and there's some great research going into these things. Celiac disease affects at least... Three million Americans, um, but they think that there's really a one in five, or maybe even a one in ten, uh, diagnosis rate versus what's actually present in the general population. So you, you, I'm just, you know, I, I I'm not a doctor. I'm not giving you medical advice, but all I could tell you is, if you have any feeling about it whatsoever, you could have just your GP take a, a blood test for you because it it's much more prevalent than folks realize. And sometimes people are asymptomatic with celiac disease for a very long time, and they only find out when they have, for example, a uh, colon cancer or, you know, it's, and then it's too late, right? Then, then it's too late to figure out what had happened. All right, I'll move on to something else here. Uh, Anne, hey, Buck, I love the show. Last Friday's Soros impression was disturbing. Why you don't like Soros? What is wrong with him? He just wants to write big checks for progressive causes and cause the collapse of America. No, it's not like he's trying to make a terrible thing happen. Wait, you don't like socialism? Come on. Uh, but what did I hear in my head when I had opened Red State and saw a picture of Soros? He is poor, but he is rich in hair. 
Shields high, friend. Thank you, Ann. Thank you very much. Uh, rich, rich in hair, indeed. Um, all right, next up we get uh, TJ. Right. Hate to play into your temptations, Buck, but I heard you mention French fries dipped in chocolate. Have you ever been to Wendy's? French fries plus chocolate frosty equals no ketchup needed. You guys, do you you ever do this? Mike and John. You, oh, you go French fries in the frosty, or you go simultaneous? No, this is never this, simultaneous. Never simultaneous. All right, you're not. I mean, you're not. A, yeah. You're not a savage. But I have done that. It's, it's delicious. Okay, that sounds amazing. Yeah. I went through a phase where I thought it'd be a good idea as a kid to like just instead of having cookies and milk, I would just take the cookies and put them in the milk and like mash it up and create this like sort of cookie dough like paste. And then I would just sort of drink it. I mean, it was amazing. Don't get me wrong. But but it was, you know, that's a thing in Philadelphia like that. We did that all the time when we were kids. Really? Huh. Well, there you go. Yeah. So I, I try to come up with with different concoctions. I also to this day, you know, I don't know if you've ever, you know, sometimes you have a food experience and. I know I've had this with alcohol, too, in my youth, in my youth, where you have a bad experience and you just can never think of that food or drink the same way. I had so much, uh, what, what is it, uh, tuna melts. I made myself so many tuna melts growing up. I haven't had a tuna melt in like 20 years because I just, for me, tuna melt is, and don't even get me started on my pet peeve in the food world, which is, of course, sun-dried tomatoes. People are like, no, Buck, they're good. I say, think about this for a second. What is the dish that you have sun-dried tomatoes in? And you're like, oh, I really needed this weird, chewy, kind of funky smelling and tasting thing in it. Give me a pasta dish that has sun-dried, to- sun-dried tomato in the sauce, and I'll tell you to take it out. And you'll be like, wow, Buck, it's better. Sun-dried tomato is the uninvited guest in your food world. You need to kick him out. Don't let him stay in the outhouse. Don't let him stay in the guest house. Sun-dried tomato, you and I have beef. Uh, let's see what else we get here. Um, Suzanne. Uh, Suzanne, uh, pardon me. Good morning, Buck. I was listening to your Wednesday podcast and I got to your hug section and I would not be afraid for a second to give you a hug. Thank you, Susanna. I appreciate it. Hug, hug accepted. Humans need positive physical touch daily. Hugs are powerful and potent. No words needed as actions speak so much louder in so many ways. Love your show and appreciate all your efforts to provide. Consider yourself hugged. From Susanna. Thank you so much, Susanna. It's one of the few hug a news anchor or hug a news person day hugs I got. So I do really appreciate it. And on the, uh, the, the health benefits of hugging, it is true. Lowers your blood pressure. It's kind of like a dog. If you think of all the good stuff from having a dog and all the good stuff of, of hugging a human being, very similar. By the way, today, I'm not, I'm not trying to start something. I'm not trying to start a fight. Because people get very mad at me when I go in this direction, especially Miss Molly, who loves pit bulls. But I was on the subway, and I was standing right next to someone who had brought on a service. It had a little service dog jacket on it. It was like an 80-pound pit bull. I mean, it was like one of those pit bulls you see that you're like, uh, pit bull versus grizzly bear. Um, I think pit bull's coming out of this one on top. Like, it was that kind of a pit bull. And I'm like, service dog? Really? Apparently. Apparently there are... 80-pound pit bull service dogs in New York City now that look like they could bench press about 350 with their forepaws. I mean, it, that that's chest like an anvil this thing had. Miss Molly, if she was here, she'd be like, but he's so cute. She thinks she loves she, you know, she loves pits. So a lot of you are like, Buck, you probably like frou-frou dogs because you're from New York. Guilty as charged. I was in the elevator earlier today in my building, and there was a lady who had a dog, a, a, a rare dog, a rare breed of dog. And I knew it right off the bat. I said, Madam, 
is that a papillon you have? And she said, yes. How did you know? And I said, that dog's under 20 pounds, madam. You're right in my wheelhouse. I know what's going on with all that stuff. All right, next up here, we have uh, Kaylin, who writes, I work at Liberty University. I don't have any pull, but it would be really cool if you could speak at convocation there. Uh, yeah, that sounds great, Kaylin. Tell your people to reach out. I'd be happy to. Where Where is Liberty, by the way? I don't, I gotta, I, I've, I know of it, but I forget where it is. Yeah, close enough. We'll, we'll figure it out. Uh, so there you have it. Um, Michael, oh, speaking of dogs, labs have been the number one breed in the U.S. for 27 straight years, almost as long as the Ford F-150. That's a pickup truck for you city slickers has been the number one selling vehicle. I, I know, labs are great. I mean, labs are, you, you can't go wrong with a lab. That I will say, you can't go wrong with a lab. They're wonderful, wonderful dogs. All right, one more, and then unfortunately i got to close. See, this is my, like among my favorite parts of the show because it makes me feel like all of you are hanging out here with me. Tomorrow we'll have better music. That harmonica dubstep music was really, that was, that's, I just sort of pick some at random sometimes. Like I pick it out of a cart we have of different music, and that was some wacko stuff. Uh, Sandy, hi, Buck. Tonight was awesome. You made me laugh all night. I turned 50 today, and you made this scary day better. Good job. Well, Sandy, happy 50th birthday, and I can't actually see a photo of you, but you don't look a day over 30. Hope you had a great birthday. Now I've got a Freedom, I've got a freedom Hut squad team member for life. That's how we do it in the media business. All right, everyone, I, I got to close it up here for today. Tomorrow, Freestyle Friday, which means we will have a lot of fun, as well as some substance, as we always do here on the show. Uh, send me your thoughts, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton, and uh, we'll get it up on the air. Until tomorrow, my friends, shields high.